I think it was a, a string of events where I was like, this is really fun. This is easier than restaurants because I know how many people are going to come through the door. And at the same time, I then turned around and I was like, oh, I've made all this money because I know how much it's going to cost and how much I charge for it. <laughs> This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The COVID-19 pandemic has created a major upheaval for many lives. Forced to abandon some dreams, let go of the past and find new ways forward. For some, letting go is hard, but with eyes wide open, it's allowed others to go down new avenues and find new opportunities that they have not been afforded. Aaron Teese is the former owner of Studio Neon and is now executive chef at the Valley Estate in Queensland. Aaron, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. You've had a pretty significant change in your life having created Studio Neon, but you had to let go of it last year. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, crazy times as we all know and uh, there's people still going through it. Um, yeah, for us it was just one of those things that being an events company and, and mainly running events. We were the first one to, to feel the real brunt of it. Um, we'd only just launched a new space probably oh, four or five months earlier and sunk all of our money into that. And we were really excited about what was going to come. And then COVID came along and sort of uh, changed the light on that very quickly. What sort of impact did it have on you having put so much into Studio Neon over the years and not only financially but but emotionally and physically, um, what sort of impact has that had on you letting go of that? Yeah, look, it's it's been tough, I'm not going to lie. Um, I think the hardest part out of it all was just taking yourself out of this situation personally. If it was a personal choice, I'd still be in with Studio Neon. I'd still be making those decisions. I'd still be going further and further uh, backwards, I suppose, uh, but really having to step outside of it and, and look at it from a business perspective, which was the only way that I could physically give it up and and take a step away from it, knowing that I was making the right choice. And, um, yeah, it's not it's not an easy choice. It's one of those things that it took a long time for myself and my, and my partner, Lauren, as well, to, to really go backwards and forth. And it was just too many uncertainties uh, leading forward. Events were always going to be one of those things where, it's the first one to be affected and probably the last one, especially when you're talking about a pandemic and numbers to then increase again. And you know, I think a lot of people sort of sat there and they said, oh, your rent's frozen, this is frozen, that's frozen. And, and I had, had someone come up to me and say, well, you do know that you're a chef, I'll put it in layman's terms, it, it all defrosts and it's still the same amount at the end. So you still owe all of that when it comes back to it. And I think that was kind of the turning point for me because I sat there and I was like, if we freeze all this for a year, events are not going to bounce back at 200% to what they were and our business is not going to increase 200% after it to be able to pay back everything that, that we've got in this year. And so we're lucky to be given, given some opportunities both through the government and through um, you know, landlords and things like that where we could step out of some of our contracts a little bit easier than others due to covid so, yeah, we just had to make that, that decision to do so. 
Studio Neon was renowned for putting on some pretty incredible events. Are there any sort of highlights from the years that, that are really sort of vivid memories for you? Oh, look, we've had some fun. Uh, we've had some fun clients as well. Uh, we're, we're, I suppose, known for doing quite creative things. So um, I think I was working with Jared Ingersoll actually on doing something for Rabobank over on Cockatoo Island in the middle of summer for 2,000 people all cooked on open fire. Um, if anyone knows Jared, that's uh, he dragged us into that quite comfortably. And um, <laughs> it was a lot of fun, quite memorable to say the least. Um, but I suppose, yeah, we've had, we've had some great clients. We've had some painful ones. And, and, and that's, I suppose, the, the best part about events. I think the fun part of it is it can be stressful. You can have these clients and then, you know, at the end of the event, you're like, all right, let's not talk to them again or let's not do another event for those people or charge a lot more next time. Um, and you, you have, you have the chance that you can do that where restaurants are a little bit more difficult that way. You made a move to Queensland. What, what, what triggered that move? Yeah, look, um, we moved to Queensland. It was one of those things we were invited, um, for Commonwealth Games to come up and do the Longines tent for all the VIPs as a catering company. We came up and, and ran that for the three or four weeks we're up here. Uh, my family's based in Ballina Byron, so uh, growing up in the area um, just sort of triggered those sorts of feelings when we first came up here. And I suppose during the the Commonwealth Games, everyone left town. It was quiet and you could get car parks everywhere and there's nobody around. I was like, wow, this is beautiful up here. This is great. Like you forget about this. And had always been caught up in Sydney and, and thinking – I suppose that's where the money is. This is where the businesses are. This is the only place that it's it's really, you know, between besides the big cities of Sydney and Melbourne um, is where our clientele is, I suppose. And and it was just one of those things that we'd, we'd thought about it. We'd, you know, you want the simpler life. You want that lifestyle change. You want to be able to go to the beach in the afternoons and, and things like that, which is what we, we didn't really have the opportunity to do in Sydney. And and when, when things finished we just sort of sat there and were like well if we do leave this do we need to be in Sydney and, and how do we go about doing so and you know we wanted to you have the dreams of having the family and and all that sort of process and it just seemed a lot easier on the Gold Coast and um, up in Queensland for us to be close to the family and I suppose starting starting fresh um, and just trying to work our, our way from there I suppose. You've before uh, joining the Valley Estate, you did some quite interesting things up in Queensland. You first uh, got a gig at Tart Bakery. What, what was that like? Yeah, so Tart uh, Tart was fantastic. It's a, a friend of mine. The owner's a friend that used to live in Sydney, and she always dreamed of having a cafe of her own. Um, so it was one of those things that we were in Sydney, and and I mentioned Gold Coast to her just seeing you know just trying to to suss out what was happening up here and she never actually thought that I'd even be interested in the position at the same time I was kind of pushing a little bit going well this could be work at least or in COVID and um, I know that it's it Gold Coast in Queensland is looking a lot better than, than where we were in Sydney so sort of offered my services and and um, she was very excited to have me on board and we just it was just a a machine it's a monster really i think we we're within a few months they were voted uh gold coast best cafe bakery 
And then from the from the moment the door opened, and she uh, Chloe had had paddock prior, so it was just one of those things. She came with a, a reputation, and straight away uh, we we're busy from day dot. Me going from events into to cafe. It's I've, I've done restaurants and things in the past, but it's a different kettle of fish altogether. So it was a quick learning curve and a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it while I was there. You also spent a bit of time moonlighting as a private chef for Tom Hanks during this time. T- tell us about that. Yeah, so it was one of those things. Um, we were lucky in Australia that we remained open mainly to the film industry, uh, only closing down a little bit. And so majority of the major films uh, from the States ended up coming straight across to Australia, and it's still happening now. We've got more of them happening um, as as the days go on, and I think they're actually building better uh, studios for it all as well. So, yeah, I just uh, randomly got a phone call from someone asking if I would like to be Tom Hanks' uh, private chef, knowing that I've I'd had that as a past history living over in Europe and, and working as a chef and a private chef over there. And sort of jumped on on the opportunity to to be able to do something like that for a short term uh, project. And yeah, I don't regret it at all. He's a lovely guy and uh, probably one of the most humble celebrities I've ever worked for. What's it like as a chef creating um, meals and maintaining a diet for someone, um, not just cooking restaurant dishes? Uh, that someone like himself, he he loved it. His wife is the the strict. Uh, person and so he he was quite comfortable with that whole process of just really it was like cook whatever you want family style meals and um yeah taking that step back is i think a lot of it you just sort of put into concept of what what would i be cooking for myself and my family at home and and you sort of replicate it for them uh most of them the people i've worked for in the past are, are quite quite comfortable with that they do long days on set and just want something to eat at the end of it. So it's, it's not so much challenging. It's more, more challenging to come up with the, the basic side of things and feel comfortable, I suppose, serving that too when you're used to doing the fine dining or the, the high-end dinners and realising that it's not what they want every single day of the week. You mentioned that moving back to moving to Queensland was sort of moving back to where you grew up. Tell, tell us about uh, growing up and what role food played in your family. Yeah, I grew up uh, around the Ballina Byron area, right up to the Gold Coast. And for myself, it was just one of those things where we had um, access to farms and beaches. And I still remember a, a lemonade tree on our way to school that I think a group of us had watched the fruit constantly, uh, trying to work out who would grab it first and whether it'd be ripe enough when you did. Um, and yeah, so part of that was, I suppose, a lot of the region, we've got one of the best food basins, I think, in the world up here in the Northern Rivers and, um, and around the Gold Coast region. And so I think you're just naturally immersed by food. My grandmother, when she came up, was a fantastic baker and, and I'd spend time with her in the kitchen. But outside of that, I think it was just mainly the way food was presented to you and, and the different choices that you could have in, in supermarkets or your local markets, um, fruit and vegetable markets, were just so different to what you'd find anywhere else. Take us back to when you first started chefing. Um, what were the real main influences on you early on in your career? I think a lot of it back then, the main influences, um, 
being based in this area, it was mainly seafood. We did a lot of fishing um, and spending time on the water. So, so that sort of process, I spent some time in, in Rays on Water Goes, and I, I still remember to this day, uh, I was working for Tippy at the time, and we had mud crabs literally crawling around on the floor underneath the kitchen benches sometimes, and the box would, in the cool room would tip over and we'd start trying to find them as the days go on. So having that close connection to the ocean and to to seafood was something that's always been close to me. And, and to this day, like I still try to get out on the water, try to look at the seasonality, understanding that process, um, concentrating a lot more these days on on the foraging and, and collecting of, of wild weeds and things. But that's sort of the grounding part of, of trying to keep in with the seasonality and and understanding that concept of how the fish and, and the whole, I suppose, world travels from from day to day. And I think that was probably the, the most important part of my earlier um, experiences in food before moving to Europe. And I think it was that big jump between what we had readily available every day of the week in in Australia to going over and, you know, experiencing a beautiful mango here off a tree in the backyard to London where they said they've got the most incredible mangoes arriving at the Michelin star restaurant you were working and it was green and unripe and horrible and you're sort of scratching your head going, have I missed something or what what's what concept is this that you you're thinking this is a nice mango so yeah it was it was a very different change going from Australia to to Europe and just seeing the difference in the produce and and how they perceive it to be as well it was in London where you ventured down the path of being a private chef what led to that um, decision and and do you have any stories of the different um, people that you cooked for yeah, sure. I suppose the, the, the ones I can talk about, um, it's still still like that, uh, even to this day. Um, I suppose what got me into it, I was, I was in uh, Harvey Nichols, which at the time was a two Michelin star restaurant working there. And we used to have the celebrities come in all the time. Um, I ended up doing a, a, I used to sort of go and see them quite regularly and, and talk to them about menus and just talk because they, more often than not just needed friends, I suppose, to eat dinner with or have a laugh with. And I suppose the maitre d's, the sommeliers and that sort of stuff all got on really well with them. So it was more of a, a family environment when they came in. And um, at one stage, Kate Moss asked me whether she could talk to me about a menu she was cooking and creating for a dinner party. And I sort of looked over it with her. And I said, oh, this is great, but it's a little bit challenging. Like, you know, I'm still new to London, like to meet people and, and get to know some more people. Do you want me to come and cook it for you? And she was like, oh, cool, no worries. Yep, that'd be great. Didn't really think about it. She's like, I'll, I'll sort you out. I'll, I'll fix you up for it and everything. I was like, oh, that's fine. Great. It was a 10-person event. And at the end of it, she sort of gave me my monthly wage um, <laughs> in cash. And I just sort of sat there and looked at her. I'm like, I can't accept this. Like, this, this is a month's wages. And she looked at me. And it was one of those things. She's like, but you're at work all the time you do what 50 hours a week i'm like well closer to the 90 hours a week she's like all right i'll give you this every week if you come and cook for me and my daughter and i was like okay i'll start in four weeks and i'll see you soon (laughs) and sort of left the conversation there walked into work the next day and said look really sorry this is my letter of resignation i'm going to give you four weeks notice because it's the right thing to do um i'm becoming a private chef (laughs) and that's how it all started and then from there 
I think it's just one of those things once you're in, in the circle, um, it's you just you go from one person to the next as as you're needed or required um, from time to time. Well, how different was it cooking for Kate Moss to then being employed by Lady Margaret Thatcher as a chef? Yeah, going from uh, I think it was eight or ten small meals a day every hour and a half that was nutritionally balanced and this, that, and everything else to um, someone that I suppose you would treat as my grandmother these days uh, was a very big change. She just wanted to eat good food and, and enjoy herself and, and didn't, didn't need to worry about things in the later life. Um, as long as it had some portion of chocolate in it towards the end of the, the day, she was quite content and you could pretty much do what you wanted to. <laughs> When you came back to Australia, you worked at a, a string of establishments. What were the real integral moments of, of the restaurants you worked at before setting up Studio Neon? I think uh, moving around Sydney, the hardest part, I think, was to get a job when you came back. Um, I'd worked in, in some great restaurants over in, in Europe and done the private chef thing as well and and always dabbling in in restaurants or doing stages while I could and had the time off as a private chef. So it was interesting coming back to Sydney um, where I hadn't lived before and I sort of moved there because that was like, it was either Sydney or Melbourne, you pick and choose. I was like, well, Sydney's better than Melbourne. So I thought, um, still kind of hold on to that a little bit. And um, and yeah, trying to get into the restaurant scene in, in Sydney was actually quite a bit of a challenge to begin with because I think a lot of people thought you were trying to uh, trying to take their job and things like that. Or a lot of the major restaurants were straight away like, oh, what Australian experience do you have? And I was like, well, I haven't really got that much experience in Australia. And it was at the time, I suppose, passed off as being so different to Europe that you didn't really understand the concept of Sydney restaurants. Um, so I think I kind of got into agency work and then from there one thing led to another and you started getting put into these better restaurants and all of a sudden you could just be like, well, okay, you know how to cook. This is what you can do. This is great. And and from there you sort of met other chefs and, and work started to get created from there. Um, but I suppose when it came to, to Studio Neon and sort of leaving leaving more of the hatted restaurants, it was my time at Est um, when I was there with Peter Doyle. And I think it was knowing the produce and understanding what we were doing and, and having, you know, beautiful burrowing ducks or things like that. And and there were other people that were starting to come through with, I think it was first season of MasterChef maybe or even before that, there were people just with passion about food and you're sort of sitting there going, I'm working in at the time a three-hat three, three hat restaurant but I don't know enough about the produce itself. I can cook it and we're, we're doing a great job of that but I want to know the backstory of that. And, that, and understand a little bit more of it, and and sort of I was more curious to to understand how things come about and why we were doing the things and where these things came from. Um, and I didn't have the time to experience that when you're working in in an establishment like that to in your spare time or spare day off to to go out and and look at farms and and meet producers and go through that process. So. I found a little uh, warehouse in, in Redfern and it was set up kind of as a little makeshift, I suppose, event space. And 
sort of took that on for some fun and games and thought we could do dinner parties and I could prep some of my private chef stuff that I was doing back while I was in Australia and have a little bit of a base and one thing led to another and it slowly grew into 12 years down the track, um, quite a successful business. You were one of the pioneers of the foraged food movement uh, that happened through uh, restaurants in Australia more than a decade ago. Tell us a bit about that period of time and and why that um, garnered your interest. Um, I think it was just something that, again, growing up in, in the Northern Rivers, it was something you knew, like you could look at the ground and know that dandelion was dandelion and there was a purpose and a, and a use for it. Um, and so I think I, I kind of just, my ears pricked up a little bit more when the word foraging uh, started coming about and I was like, oh, that's actually a thing. I didn't, didn't realize it was much of, I thought that was, I, I never called it foraging. I still don't really call it foraging. I call it more collecting. Um, everyone forages these days. They forage at their local markets. They forage at supermarkets. That's where the word foraging has got to us these days. Um, but yeah, I suppose we just go and collect bits and pieces and, and being able to walk outside and, and have something that's local to you or pretty much growing in your front yard was, was something that we always had. So um, when it came to the, the food movement or foraging movement, I think it was just an easy progression and you meet like, like-minded people and, and you got to spend time out in the forest. Uh, I've spent some time with Diego. I'd never really uh, sourced mushrooms uh, saffron milk caps and things like that down in in Belangelo State Forest. So it was a good excuse to get out there and and again working with the seasonality and and farmers. It it, it just sort of it ingrained to you the seasons and how short they can be or how quickly they can change and and why we need to be working more with them. And the more you start to spend time with these people that are also interested in it, you start to to see the medical medicinal benefits of eating this way sort of like all of your wild weeds that show up in winter are actually there to help you and they're the bitter leaves and that sort of process to help you digest all the heavy foods that you'd usually be eating so you go through winter and animals are easier to collect because they sort of come out to roads and things like that or warmer areas that they're easy to hunt and then you need to to break that down with the wild weeds of the winter crops that this whole process started to make a lot more sense. And I think that's, that's a process that I thoroughly enjoyed and jumped on because it took me back to the early days of fishing and knowing the seasons and, and knowing what was coming through and when and, and sort of waiting for those uh, moments when they first start to appear and then when they last disappear. Um, so, yeah, it's always been a bit of fun uh, following those sorts of movements. And I think the the foraging movement was just one of those things that, started easily and continued and I think is still now, um, I suppose, ever-growing, and uh, which is also good to see. What was the first event you organised where you thought, I love this and I could make a career out of it? Oh, look, I actually I couldn't pinpoint that. I think it was a, a string of events where I was like, this is really fun. This is easier than restaurants because I know how many people are going to come through the door. And at the same time, I then turned around and I was like, oh, I've made all this money because I know how much it's going to cost and how much I charge for it. <laughs> and I think that was the part where I sort of sat there and went, oh, there's, I only pay staff when I need staff and I only pay for the amount of food that I need. And 
and I don't need all the larger, you know, fridges and cool rooms and spaces and, and everything else to add to it um, straight away. So it was, I think, a little bit easier to get into the events side of things because work was so sporadic and I didn't have, I, I set it up with very little money to begin with. I didn't have the money to go and invest and even have 20 different items on the menu um, or open up and have staff there knowing whether it was going to work or wasn't going to work. And, and I think I, I just sort of weighed up the the challenges about starting a restaurant as to having staff and, and people on full time to being able to do it sporadically and, and when people came to you. And I think that was, a, I suppose, more the turning point where I, I sort of sat there and was like, oh, I think events could be something and this could be a bit of fun. And in the downtime, I can then have the time to go out to these farms and meet the farmers and the producers and, and understand their concepts and then bring that education back and, and run dinners and workshops. with We used to call them unearthed dinners where we'd run an eight-course degustation and we'd invite farmers in and they'd talk about their produce, which would then, for people in Sydney, give them an understanding of how hard farming is and what they've got to do to get through these things or even just the transport logistics, which I think fascinated me more than the actual event side of it is is learning and having the ability to have the time to go out and experience these things firsthand. What does it take to create a great event? And do you, do you have an event that you can take us through and, and what it took to pull it together? <laughs> uh, probably probably the best ones um, would be the ones that uh, my wife organised uh, towards the later years because uh, – to begin with, I think I think I was pretty average at it, to be honest. Um, and again, it comes down to relying on on uh, great people around you to do fantastic things that have the experience far beyond uh, what what I had at the time. Uh, I was always, you know, we did creative events. We had had a good amount of fun doing so. But I think bringing the logistics together. Um, far outweighs the cooking abilities to, of, of anybody uh, doing the event themselves. I think the hardest challenges are those where it comes to uh, sort of like working in stores like the Louis Vuitton events uh, were always a challenge because it was one of those things where you're not allowed any smoke, any fire. Um, there's so many logistical nightmares with it where half of the stuff, most of the stuff would either be served cold or, or sous vide. And I was glad that sous vide started to come around and become popular because we could use those sorts of methods um, in the process to, to be able to create food for them. But half the time, uh, some of the requests and things we've had, some of the, the processes you've had to go through, I've, I've cooked off massage tables in, in massage rooms, which actually works fantastic because they're height adjustable for someone that's 6'4". Um, but, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's an endless string of, of events that have taken place that could all I'm, – I'm smiling now just thinking about half of them and I don't even know where I'd start. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun one when you start to look at, at that side of things. And I think what people think is achievable, we used to – sort of have people go, I've got a beautiful big kitchen and and you sort of get there and they didn't have an oven or didn't have any of these things at all or we've got a huge area out the back that you can use our stock room and and cook for, you know, Apple or somewhere like that and in the in, in the end you get there and there's there's no water, there's no power, there's, you know, a flickering light and, and not much else. 
Um, so it's just trying to, you learn very quickly to go and do your due diligence and, and check out the spaces and, and go through everything and make sure that you're writing a menu based around the capabilities of the space and the staff that are there. You're currently the executive chef at the Valley Estate. Uh, tell us about your cooking there and, and how different it is to what you've been doing for the last decade. Yeah, I mean, I'm now exec chef here. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, it's a new venue, so it's, it's just been built. And that's one of those things where it's mainly a wedding venue, uh, not so much events. We are starting to get more and more events, which is fantastic. Um, but I think prior to this, a lot of Studio Neon was very creative work where it was one of those things where we would have people like, I don't know, what's a weird one? Um, Deliveroo come to us and say, we want to make an edible nail polish. It, we need it to stick on your finger for 24 hours, um, which sounds disgusting and is, don't get me wrong. We try to encourage people not to lick their fingers um, and to wash them regularly. And then um, we want it to taste like roast beef and blueberry pie, which we actually did and created and had a lot of fun doing. Um, there was a lot of back and forth. Oh, and I forgot to mention it had to be the, the delivery green teal colour um, <laughs> to, to, to make matters a little bit harder. Um, we're here at, at, at the Valley Estate. We've gone with the very much a local, seasonal, sustainable approach and actually trying to abide by that and, and being in the food basin that we are, um, having that, that two, three, four-month leeway of knowing roughly what your events are or, you know, two months out, we, we've got rough menus that we can sort of pull together and work closely with like mushroom farmers or or others that are growing things specifically for us and and that we can then put on a plate. I think that keeping the simplicity of things and, and trying to really only work with two or three items on a plate but doing them really well is, is what people really appreciate. And um, yeah, so so that 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 side of things is very different to to the old studio neon where it was very very challenge based and you know never done before. Can you do it? I'm not sure. Maybe let's try. Oh, it kind of worked. I think that works. Is that all right? Is that enough to get us over the line with this product? Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's been it's been a good challenge as well. Um, and getting into the, I suppose the hardest part with weddings is just the dietaries these days and trying to, to make that work in, in your favor and writing custom menus or menus as, as a whole or packages that, that are, you know, dietary friendly as well. What does the future look like for events? Oh, that's a big call. Um, I, I actually, I don't know. And, and if I had a better, I'd, Year, I would have probably still had Studio Neon. So with that being said, it, it's a challenging one. There's so much stuff happening online these days through virtual reality and and um, through through Zoom and and all those platforms, which is fantastic. With people actually getting there, and I think it's just going to come. I mean, we're lucky. We're up in Queensland, we're still doing events for for up to 300 people. Uh, where you guys in Sydney are in, in total lockdown and um, and it's not looking looking great for events at all. So I think that's the challenging part, that every state at the moment is different within Australia and trying to work out where that fits. And then people's mindset as well coming out of it, you know, how do people feel about going to a wedding? I think, I think they're more comfortable knowing that they're like-minded people or most of them are friends, but to then go to a, 
a media launch or a media event where you don't know people or you're going into a situation where that things can be compromised. Grazing tables, from what I can understand, are probably going to be gone for good um, as much as they were loved so much prior. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough call and I think it's going to be one of those things that I really hope the industry bounces back. And, look, even with that, you look at the restaurant scene these days, that's even struggling. Takeaway is not going to be enough to, to keep majority of people afloat. Um, as much as the government thinks it's great that we're still open and we're doing takeaway, I can guarantee you that no one's doing more than, you know, 30% turnover to what they were prior. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tough one. And I just I hope that we can get some normality back. And, and if we can't, we can pivot enough to be able to make things happen and, and come up with other unique ways of doing things like, you know, sending out these corporate boxes and, and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, time's going to – it's just going to take time and, and time will tell us how we go and, and, and what way we go down uh, to make the best of the opportunities that we have. You've had quite a big upheaval and change in your life in the last year and a half. Has there been positives to come out of this change for you? Oh, absolutely. Like I've, I've got a beautiful wife. Uh, we've now got a seven-week-old son um, who's just absolutely adorable. We are living on pretty much a small hobby farm of a couple acres here and picked up goats the other day on Father's Day and we've got the chickens and the dogs and, and that sort of grounding, I suppose, of of life, I think, is is the most important part that's actually come out of this. It's it's understanding that while you're in business and, and it was my own business and you're working hard, you didn't necessarily need to. It's it's understanding that process of what's important. Um, and I think COVID's been good for a lot of chefs to to really take that step back and, and realise that, oh, the world didn't fall apart the moment we didn't do the 70 or the 80 hours a week or, you know, we can ask for help here just to, to get ourselves over the line or, you know, sometimes the employers are being irresponsible in, in the way that they're just making people work harder and harder to try to, to make more money themselves or just to literally get by. So I think... I think COVID's been good for that, to be able to take that step back and really appreciate what's important to you and take that on board and actually start to act on it instead of thinking about it and then trying to push it aside because another job comes in or something else happens or you've been pulled in another avenue. Um, so, yeah, we've been really happy and, and lucky with the move that we've done here. Um, and, again, I suppose with that being said, being on this side of the border, and, and still quite free in, in what we can and can't do has been um, great as well. I, I, I can't help but think of the poor guys down in Sydney and Melbourne and yourselves um, and what, what it's like down there because it would be horrible. Well, Aaron, we've loved catching up with you to hear your story today on Deep in the Weeds. Um, please keep in touch. Congratulations on becoming a father and good luck with that. Thank you very much. And um, we'll catch up again soon. Perfect. It's the biggest adventure so far. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.